Chapter 1 of The Witch's Fear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Spence. The Witch's Salem by John R. Music. Chapter 1. Through shades and solitudes profound, the fainting traveler wends his way, bewildering meteors glares around, and tempts his wandering feet astray. Montgomery. This autumnal evening was cool, dark and dusty. Storm clouds were gathering thickly overhead, and the ground beneath was covered with rustling leaves, which lightened the early frost, lay helpless and dead at the roadside, overmade the sport of the wind. A solitary horseman was slowly plodding along the road but a few miles from the village of Salem. In truth, he was so near the famous Puritan village that through the hills and intervening treetops he could have seen the spires of the churches he had raised his melancholy eyes from the ground. The rider was not a youth, nor had he reached the middle age. His face was handsome, though distorted with agony. Occasionally he pressed his hand to his side as if in pain. But longer pain, weariness, or anguish, he pressed on, admonished by the lengthening shadow of the approach of night. Turning his great, sad, brown eyes at the last to where the road wound about the valley across which the distant spires of Salem could be seen, he sighed. Can I reach it tonight? I must. Salem, that strange village to which the horseman was wending his way in October 1684, was a different village from the Salem of today. It is a town familiar to every American student, and having derived its fame from its historic recollections and from its commerce or industry, its name carries us back two centuries, suggesting the same entrancing image of the life of the Pilgrim Fathers, who gave that sacred name to the place of their chosen habitation. Whatever changes civilization or time may bring about, the features of natural scenery are, for the most part, unalterable. Massachusetts Bay is as it was when the Pilgrim Fathers first beheld it. On land, there are still the craggy hills with jutting promontories of granite, where the barbers grow and room is found in the narrow valleys for small farms and for apple trees and little slopes of grass and patches of tillage where all else looks barren. The scenery is not more picturesque today than on that chill autumnal eve when the strange horseman was urging his jaded steed along the path which led to the village. His garments were travel-stained and his features haggard. Three hunters with guns on their shoulders were not half a mile in advance of the horsemen. They, too, evidently had passed a day of arduous toil, for climbing New England hills in search of the wild deer was no easy task. They were men who had hardly reached middle age, but their grave puritanic demeanor made them look older than they were. Their conversation was grave, gloomy, and mysterious. There was little light or frivolous about them, for the life was somber. The hunt was not sport, but arduous toil, 
and their legs were so weary they could scarcely drag themselves along. Now we may rejoice, John Bly, that home is within sight, for truly I am tired, and I think I could not go much further. One of the pedestrians remarked to the man at his side. Right glad will I be when we are near, answered the fatigued John Bly. This has been a hard day with fruitless results. We have had some fair shots today, put in a third man, who walked a little behind the others. Verily we have, yet what profits it to us, Samuel Gray, when our guns fail to carry the ball to place? I had as many fair shots today as would bring down a dozen bucks, and yet I missed every time. You know full well I am not one to miss. You are not, John Louder. Then the three men looked mysteriously at each other. They were all believers in supernatural agencies, and the fact that such faultless marksmen should miss was enough to establish in their minds a belief that other than natural causes were at work. There could be no other re reason given that John Louder should miss his mark and that his gun was bewitched. It was an age when the last dying throes of superstition seemed fascinating on the people's minds, and the spasmodic struggle threatened to upset their reason. The New Englander's mind was prepared for mysteries, as the fallow ground is prepared for the sea. He was bruised conquering the rugged earth and making it yield to his husbandry. His time was divided between arduous toil for bread and fighting the Indians. He was hemmed in by a gloomy old forest, the magnitude of which he did not dream, and it was only natural, with his fertile imagination, narrow perceptions, and limited knowledge, that he would see strange sights and hear strange sounds. Images and visions which have been portrayed in tales of romance and given interest to the page of poetry were made by him to throng the woods, flit through the air, and hover over the heads of terrified officials whose learning should have placed them beyond the bounds of superstition. The ghosts of murdered wives, husbands, and children played their part with a vividness of representation and artistic skill of expression hardly surpassed in scenic representation on the stage. The superstition of the Middle Ages was embodied in real action with all its extravagant absurdities and monstrosities this carried into the courts of law, where the relations of society and conduct or feelings of individuals were suffered to be under control of fanciful or mystical notions, could have but one effect. When a whole people abandoned the solid ground of common sense, overleaped the boundaries of human knowledge, gave itself up to wild reveries, and let loose its passions without restraint, the result was more destructive to society than a Vesuvius to Pompeii. When John Louder said his gun was bewitched, there was no incredulous smile on his companions' faces. The political complexion of England, at that time, no doubt, had much to do with the superstitious awe which overspread that country. Within the recollection of many inhabitants, the parent government had changed three times. Charles II had lived such a life of furious dissipation that his earthly career was drawing to a close. The New England people were zealous theologians. In Massachusetts and Plymouth hated above all sects the Roman Catholics 
Charles II could not reign long, and James, Duke of York, his brother, would be his successor, as it was generally known that Charles II had no legitimate heir. It was hoped by some that his illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth, a Protestant, might succeed him. Some had even hinted that Charles II, while flying from Cromwell, had secretly married Lucy Waters, the mother of the Duke, but this has never been proved in history. The somewhat ostentatious manner in which the Duke of York had been accustomed to go to Mass during the life of his brother was the chief cause of the general dislike in which he was held. Even Charles, giddy and careless as he was in general, saw the imprudence of James's conduct and significantly told him on one occasion that he had no desire to go upon his travels again, whatever James might wish. When it became currently reported all over the American colonies that this bigoted Catholic would, on the death of his brother, become their ruler, the New Englanders began to tremble for their religion. There was murmuring from every village and plantation, keeping society in a constant ferment. The three hunters were still discussing their ill luck when the sound of the horse's hoofs fell on their ears, and they turned slowly about to see a stranger approaching them on horseback. His sad gray eye had something wild and supernatural about it. His costume had at one time been elegant, but was now stained with dust and travel. It included a wrought flowing neckcloth, a sash covered with silver lace red cloth coat, a satin waistcoat embroidered with gold, a trooping scarf, and a silver hat band. His trousers, which were met above the knees by a pair of riding boots, like the remainder of his attire, was covered with dust. The expression of pain on his face was misconstrued by the supernatural hunters into a look of fiendish triumph, and John Louder, seizing the arm of Bly, whispered, Is it he? Perhaps. I know it, Bly, for he hath followed me all day. Then wherefore not give him the ball, which he hath guarded from the deer? It would be of no avail, John. A witch cannot be killed with lead. He would throw the ball in my face and laugh at me. The three walked hastily along, casting wary and uneasy glances behind as the horsemen drew nearer. Each trembled lest the horseman should speak, and once or twice it seemed as if he would. But pain, or some other cause unknown to the hunters, prevented his doing so. He rode swiftly by, disappearing over the hill in the direction of Salem. When he was out of sight, the three hunters paused, and, failing on their knees, each uttered a short prayer of deliverance from Satan. As they rose, John Louder said, Now I know full well, good men, that he is the wizard who has tampered with my gun. Who is he? Ah, oh, well, may you ask Samuel Gray who he is? A stranger, the black man, the devil, who has consumed this form to mislead and torment us. One can only wonder at the various cunnings of Satan. And Louder sighed. Truly you speak, friend John, Bly answered. The enemy of men's souls is constantly on the lookout for the unwary. I have met him and wrestled with him until I was almost overcome. But, having on the whole armor of God, I did cry out, Get thee behind me, Satan, and behold, I could smell the sulphur of hell, 
as the gates were opened to admit the Prince of Darkness. The shades of night were creeping over the earth, and the three weary hunters were not yet within sight of their homes when the horsemen, who had strangely excited their fears, drew rein at the spring not a fourth of a mile from the village of Salem, and allowed his horse to drink. He pressed his hand to the side as if suffering intolerable anguish and murmured, Will I find shelter there? Overcome by suffering, he at last slipped from his saddle and, sitting among the rustling leaves, heedless of the lowering clouds and threatened storm, buried his face in his hands. Two hours had certainly elapsed since he first came in sight of Salem, and yet so slow he had been his pace that he had not reached the village, but on the earth, threatened with a raging tempest, he breathed in feeble accents a prayer to God for strength to perform the great and holy task on which he was bent. He was sick and feeble, and his side was a wound that might prove fatal, and to this he occasionally pressed his hand as if in pain. He who heareth the poor when they cry unto him answered the prayer of the desolate. A farmer boy came along whistling merrily, despite the approaching night and storm. Not the chilling blast of October, the dread of darkness, nor the cold world could depress the spirits of Charles Stevens, the merry lad of Salem. In fact, he was so merry that by the straight-laced Puritans he was thought ungodly. He had a predisposition to whistling and singing, and was of a light and frivolous carriage. He laughed at the sanctity of some people and was known to smile even on the Lord's day when, in exuberance of his spirits, his feet kept time to his whistling. The good Salamites were horrified by this ungodly dance. Charles Stevens, however, had a better heart and was a truer Christian than many of those sanctimonious critics who sought to restrain the joy and gladness with which God filled his soul. It was this good Samaritan who came upon suffering stranger whom the three Puritans had condemned in their own minds as an emissary of the devil. Why do you sit here, sir? Charles asked, leaving off his whistle. Night is coming on and is growing so chill and cold. We must keep moving or surely you will perish. I cannot rise, was the answer. Cannot rise? Prissy, what ails you, friend? I am sick, sore, and wounded. Wounded, cried Charles, and sick too? His sharp young eyes were unable to penetrate the deepening shades of twilight, and he saw a ghastly pallor overspread the man's face, who, pressing his hand upon his side, gave vent to gasps of keen agony. His left side was stained with blood. You are wounded, Charles Stevens at last declared. Pray, how come it about? I was fired upon by an unseen foe, who what cause it not? As being a stranger in these parts, I have had no quarrel. Come, let me help you to rise. No, it is useless. I am tired and too faint to go further. Let me lie here. I will soon be dead, and all this agony will be over. At this, the cheerful mind of Charles Stevens asserted itself by inspiring hope in the heart of the fainting stranger. No, no, my friend, never give up. Don't say die so long as you live, but it is but a few rods further to go home where I live with my mother. I can help you walk so far, and there you can get rested and warm, and my mother will dress your wound. 
Can I go? the traveler asked. Men can do wonders when they try. Then I will try. I will help you. The boy threw his strong arm around the man and raised him to his feet, but his limbs no longer obeyed his will, and he sank again upon the ground. It is of no avail, my good boy. I cannot go. Leave me to die. Charles turned his eyes about to look for the stranger's horse, but it had strayed off in the darkness. To search for him would be useless, and for a moment the good Samaritan stood as if in thought. Then, stripping off his coat and wrapping it around the wounded man, he said hopefully, I will be back soon. Don't move, and he hurried away swiftly toward home. On reaching the threshold, he thanked God that he was not a wanderer on such a night. The New England kitchen, with its pewter-filled dresser, reflecting and multiplying the genial blaze of the log-heaped fireplace, its high-backed brush-bottomed chairs grating as if they were moved over the neatly sanded floor, its massive beam running midway of the ceiling across the room, and its many doors leading to other rooms and attics, was a picture of comfort two hundred years ago. The widowed mother, with her honest, beautiful face, surrounded by a neat, dark cap border, met her son as he entered the kitchen and, glancing at him proudly, said, The wind gives you good color, Charles. Yes, mother, rubbing his cheeks. They do burn some. Mother. Well? I heard you tell Mr. Blair the other day that you couldn't trust me with all you had. Will you trust me with old Maul in the cart tonight? What do you want with Mole on the cart? To go to the big spring under the hill for a poor man who is sick and wounded. And alone? Yes, mother. It is a freezing night. Yes, mother, and he may die. He is unable to walk. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? After a long pause, the widow said, Yes, you may have old Mole on the cart. Bring him here, and we will care for him. But remember that tomorrow's work must be done. If you have any fault to find tomorrow night, don't trust me again. And the boy, turning to the cupboard beneath the dressers, buttered a generous slice of bread, and then left the room with a small pitcher and returned it brimming full of cider, his mother closely noting all, while she busied herself making things to rights in her culinary department. Charles next went out and harnessed the mare to the cart, then returned to the kitchen for his bread and cider. Why not eat that before you go, queried her mother. I'm not hungry. I've had some supper, you know. Good night, mother. I will be back soon, so have the bed ready for the wounded stranger. God bless you, my brave boy, the mother exclaimed as he went out and sprang into the cart. She now knew that he had taken the bread and cider for the sick man under the hill. Charles hurried old Mole at a fast gait than she was accustomed to and found the stranger where he had left him, leaping from the cart, and said, I am back, sir, if you said you were faint. Here's some of our cider, and if you will sit up and drink it and eat this bread, you will feel better, and here is old Mole and the cart ready to take you home, where you will receive good Christian treatment until you are well enough to go on your way rejoicing. So he went on, bobbing now here and now there, and talking as fast as he could, so as not to hear the poor man's outpourings of gratitude as he ate and drank and was refreshed. With some difficulty, he got the stranger into the cart, where, supported by the boy's strong arm, he rode in almost total silence 
through the increasing darkness to the home of the widow Stevens. He was taken from the cart and was soon reclining upon a bed. His wound, though painful, was not dangerous and began to heal almost immediately. Surgery was an infancy in America, and on the frontier of the American colonies, everyone was his own surgeon. The widow dressed the wound herself, and the stranger recovered rapidly. Charles, next day, found a horse straying in the forest with a saddle and holster, and knowing it to be the speed of the wounded stranger, he brought it home. As the wounded man recovered, he became more silent and melancholy. He had not even spoken his name and seldom uttered a word unless addressed. One night, this mysterious stranger disappeared from the widow's cottage. He might have been thought ungrateful had he not left behind five golden guineas, which the note left behind said were in part to remunerate the good people who had watched over and cared for him so kindly. Charles Stevens and his mother were much puzzled at the mysterious stranger, and often when alone they commented on his conduct. Their home was outside the village of Salem, and for days they did not have a visitor, but two or three of their neighbors had seen the stranger while at their house, yet they told no one about him. His mysterious disappearance was kept a secret by mother and son. Little did they dream that in after years they would suffer untold sorrow for playing the part of the Good Samaritans. John Louder and his friends had almost forgotten their day of hard luck in the woods. Their more recent hunts had proven successful, for the witches had temporarily left off tampering with their guns. The stranger whom they had met on that evening was quite forgotten. A fortnight after the stranger disappeared, John Louder was wandering in the forest, his gun on his shoulder. The sun had just dipped below the western hills and trees, and he was approaching a small lake at which the deer came to drink. It was a dense forest through which he was pressing his way. In places it was so dense that he was compelled to part the underbrush with his hands. Centuries of summer suns had warmed the tops of the same noble oaks and pines, sending their heat even to the roots. Though the early frost of October had stricken many a leaf from its parent stem, enough still remained to obscure the vision at a rod's distance. Night was approaching, and John Louder, brave as he was to natural danger, had a strange dread of shadows and the unreal. He pressed his way through the woods until a spot almost clear of timber was in sight. This little area, which afforded a good view of the sky, although it was pretty well filled with dead trees, lay between two of those high hills or low mountains into which the whole surface of the adjacent country was broken. Dashing aside the bushes and brambles of the swamp, the forester burst into the area with an exclamation of delight. One can breathe here. There is the lake to which deer come to drink. Now if Satan said not a wish to lead my boys astray, perchance I may have a venison ere an hour has passed. He gathered some dry sticks of wood, and with his flint and steel quickly kindled a fire. His fire was to keep off the mosquitoes, which were tormenting in that locality. The fire did not alarm the deer, for they had seen woods burn so often that they would go quite close to a blaze. Hardly had he lighted his fire when he was startled by the tramp of feet near, and a moment later a horseman rode out into the woods and drew rein before him. Louder was surprised, but by no means alarmed. The man in the forest was by no means in common, 
that he felt a little curious to know why he was there he reasoned that probably the fellow had lost his way and had been attracted by his campfire but the stranger's question dispelled that delusion are you john louder he asked yes you live at salem i do are you a protestant i am you do not believe in the transubstantiation of the body and the blood of christ into the bread and wine of the sacrament john louder who was a true puritan and a hater of the papist quickly responded i do not hold to any such theology nor do you believe in the infallibility of the pope i believe no such doctrine then there can be no doubt that you are a true protestant i am louder answered with no small degree of pride so much the better the stranger dismounted from his horse and slipped his left hand through the rein allowing the tired beast to graze while with his right hand he began searching his pockets for something would you have a catholic king he asked while searching his pockets no you prefer a protestant i do i knew it and he continued king charles is nearing his end but a few months more must see the last of this monarch and then we will have another the great question which appeals to the heart of every englishman today is shall it be a protestant or a catholic a protestant called john louder in his bigoted enthusiasm then john louder it behoves the english people to speak their minds at once lest they have fastened upon them a monarch who will wrench from them their religious liberties louder was wondering what the man could mean when the stranger suddenly took from his pocket a book it was a book with a red back as could be seen from the firelight the stranger drew from another pocket a pen and ink form and in a voice which was solemn and impressive said sign john louder was astonished at the request or command whichever it might be and mechanically stretched out his hand to take the book at this moment the campfire suddenly flamed up and he afterwards averred that the face of the stranger was suddenly changed to that of the devil and from his burning orbs there issued blue jets of flames while the whole air was permeated with sulphur with a yell of horror he started back crying take it away take away your book i will not sign i will not sign sign it and i promise you a protestant king quaking with superstitious dread louder sank down upon the ground and buried his face in his hands for several minutes he remained thus trembling with fear and when he finally recovered sufficiently to raise his eyes the stranger was gone he and his horse had vanished and john louder seizing a firebrand searched the ground for the print of a proven hope he found it and snatching up his rifle ran home rapidly as he could it was late that night when he reached his house and rapping on the door called good wife good wife awake and let me in john louder wherefore came you so early when i thought you had gone to stalk the deer and would not come before morning i have seen him whom have you seen the man with the book this announcement produced great consternation in the mind of goodwife louder to have seen the man with the book was an evil omen and to sign this book was the loss of one's eternal soul did you sign it john she asked 
No. God be praised. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ashley Spence